Our psalm this morning is Psalm 79, and I would want to begin by telling you is that I studied this psalm this past week, I couldn't help but think about brothers in Christ in different places in this world and even our city who are experiencing some of the same feelings of devastation and seemingly hopelessness that Asaph the author of this psalm, uh, is feeling as he writes this. I thought about a brother in uh, Sri Lanka who for now maybe 12 or 18 months, he and his family have experienced a growing persecution of them and the other people in their church as a result of um, the pressure of them being a minority uh, religion in that country. And he has prayed for his daughter who is at school being taunted um, because she is a Christian. And she has, he has prayed for the safety of his wife as she goes out and shops and what she might experience in persecution. And this past Sunday morning, I'm sure that they were looking forward to being in the sanctuary of their church and to enjoy uh, celebrating the resurrection. And they're in the sanctuary. In the middle of the service, a bomb goes off and immediately kills his wife and daughter, wounds him. And as he sits in a hospital, I wonder what he's praying. I wonder what he's praying. I thought of a brother in Christ who is in Greece. He's actually a Syrian man who several years ago, had a very successful business in Syria. And um, he and his family enjoyed uh, living in a very nice home. They had nice things. They were pretty well off. And as the violence and persecution continued in his country, he came to the realization that his only way of protecting his family was to flee that country. And in fleeing that country... He really could take nothing with him but what they could carry. So he left his business, he left his nice home, and he prayed for his family, God, please get us across Turkey safely. Lord, please help us find a way to to get across uh, the water at that point and get into Europe. He prayed for the protection of his family, and yet in the midst of those prayers, he He experienced theft. The very things that they were carrying that were valuable to them were stolen or they had to be, they were exploited for uh, for passage, safe passage in certain areas. And the more he prayed, the more suffering he experienced. And now he's in a refugee camp that is very dangerous in Greece. Living in a tent, wondering if he's going to have a home and daily praying I guess for the safety of his, of his family. And I, I wonder what those prayers are like. Or I think of a brother here in Memphis who raised his son in the church, who loved his son well, who, who treated his son with the same affection and intentionality that he did with any of his kids. And yet this son has completely rebelled against Christ and the church doesn't want to talk with his dad. His dad has prayed 
over and over, pleaded on his knees for his son. Lord, Lord, please. And yet, the, the more he prays, the more, the more it seems to get worse. And so the question comes, why pray? Why pray when you've been praying all along and you're in a refugee camp in Greece with nothing? Why pray when you've been praying all along and, and, and there in the sanctuary of your church, your wife and daughter are killed? Why pray when you have for years labored on your knees for your son and he seems farther away from the gospel and Christ than he was when you began those prayers. Why pray? And yet, Asaph prays. And I think we have to figure out this morning why. Why does he pray? And what is he, what can this psalm, what can God's word teach us about prayer when everything seems lost? Let's read Psalm 79. Psalm of Asaph, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become like a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealously burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you, on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities, let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your namesake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your prayer, your praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think the problem with our prayers, the problem often with my prayer, is this. It's just too practical. It's just businesslike. It's why, it's why I pray. I think to myself, I need, to, I need God to do these things, and so I need God to act in this certain way. And I think there is something for us to learn from Psalm 79 about prayer, about what it's supposed to be. Is it supposed to be like that? where I have a problem and God fixes it. Is that all prayer is? I don't think Psalm 79 would suggest that. First of all, you're going to see, we're going to see before us in verses 1 through 4 that Asaph prays his pain. He teaches us, he's teaching us to pray 
our pain. There's real pain here that he's experiencing. The fall of Jerusalem has taken place. And the first thing is he's expressing to God the pain of, of the loss of the, uh, the pain of loss, the loss of people, and the loss of the land. God, all, all, everything that we have owned is gone. Everything that we possess is laid to waste. And not only that, but our very families. He says there, the, the, the devastation is so great that we can't even bury the dead. They just lay there, open. Their, their blood spilled all over Jerusalem. Pain of loss. But he also expresses a pain of shame in verse 4. He says, they're taunting us, God. Not only have I lost everything, we've lost everything that we own, lost your, in, your, in, your in habitation, your inheritance, not only have your people died, my family members, but people are taunting us and saying, look at them. They're nothing. And I'm experiencing, even as alive, this shame. And as I'm reading along in this uh, psalm and studying, maybe you felt the same way as you're reading it. In verses 1 through 4, why does, why does Asaph tell God what God already knows? God already knows that Jerusalem's been laid to waste. God already knows that that. His, his inheritance has been in, invaded. God already knows that these people have been killed. God knows about the shame and he knows about the loss. Maybe that's the first thing we need to learn about prayer. Prayer is more than getting things done. Asaph isn't telling, isn't telling uh, God anything he doesn't know. So why does he tell him? He tells them because he's in relationship with God. Prayer is more than getting things done. Prayer is being in relationship with our Heavenly Father. This past week, well, I guess it was Tuesday. Tuesday, I just got to a point, Tuesday morning, yesterday morning, I got to a point, yesterday morning, Wednesday. Tuesday, I got to a point where I, I was just so beat up spiritually over the last 10 days that, that I was on the verge of, of tears and and even foolishly lashed out at my, my wife for, for nothing on Tuesday night. And I recognized Wednesday morning, Todd, you are, you are facing so much spiritual attack from all these different places. They're unrelated, but it's just like wave after wave after wave, and your emotions are raw, and they're, and they're stretched thin. And I thought to myself, you know what? There's some brothers in Christ I just got to let them know. Now, did I think they could do anything to fix what was going on? And did some of them already kind of know what was going on? Yes, they did already know, some of them. And no, <laughs> as awesome as these men are, there's nothing they could do to fix what was going on. But I texted them anyways that morning. And I said, hey, this is how I'm feeling. This is what's going on. Why did I do that if, if they already knew? Why did I do that if, they, if I knew they weren't going to fix it or couldn't fix it? It's because I was in relationship with them. I needed, I, I needed, I needed to be known. I needed, I needed that, that connection. This is what Asaph is doing as he prays to God. He's praying his pain because he's in relationship with the, with the Father. He certainly knows God is sovereign and he can do something, but he's sharing stuff that you'd say God already knows these things. Why not skip that and just go to the part where you want God to do something 
Because Asaph is teaching us that as we pray, prayer is not simply getting things done. Prayer is being in relationship with our Father. And being in relationship means we pray our pain. It means we recount to God the things that we are feeling. It means we say it out loud. Asaph goes on as he teaches us, and in verses 5 through 7, we see Asaph praying God's justice. It's very interesting in this psalm, and I know Dan touched on it a little bit last week. There's two things that Asaph does in this psalm that are, um, we generally are uncomfortable with in our prayers. Last week, Dan mentioned one of them, it's lament. We generally don't lament in our prayers. We're not, we're, as, as, as Christians in Memphis in 2019, we're, we're not usually comfortable with prayers of lament. The other thing that I think we're especially not comfortable with that Asaph does here is prayers of imprecation, where, where he calls God to do bad things to other people. <laughs> he asks God to bring God's judgment and action upon someone else. And those two things, lament and the imprecatory aspect of a psalm or imprecations that calling down a, basically a curse on someone else, those are two things we just generally don't do in our prayer groups, right? When we're meeting for prayers, you don't hear a whole lot of prayers just lament, how long, O oh Lord? What are you going to do? And the, the prayer that Asaph makes here is a real directed lament. So it's not just, a, it's not just hey, my heart is in the depths of woe, like Psalm 130 last week. He says directly to God, how long? How long, Lord, are you going to let this go on? Are you going to forget us forever? It's like we studied Psalm 13 last fall. Real directed lament. Not something we're used to. And these imprecations, when he says in verse 6, pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that are called. We don't often hear that, do we? In our prayer groups. I'm not even sure we hear it in our own prayers by ourselves. Lord, pour out your anger on these people. We've actually been taught the opposite. No, let's, let's pray to forgive them. So what do we do with this? How do, what's going on here? Well, I think Dan said it well last week that when it comes to lament, the importance of us praying prayers of lament not only is the fact that we need to have uh, an honest relationship with the Lord, but it's in that honest relationship with the Lord that we actually can understand God's character. And if we're not willing to be honest in our conversations with the Lord, we're going to really struggle to, to have our hearts aligned with God's character. And so lament is important for us to get past the surfaciness of our prayers, to get to our hearts that we might understand the heart of God. I think Dan brought that out last week. But what about imprecation? What about asking God to bring punishment on others? What do we need to know about the nature of these imprecatory psalms? How, do we, how, do we, how does that make sense in our world today? I think several things can be helpful for us. I think, first of all, I think we need to know this about the imprecations that we see in psalms, certainly the ones that are in here in this psalm. There's, there's several of them, not just verse 6, but in other places of this psalm. I think, first of all, we need to realize this. Number one, they're prayers. This isn't, this isn't a curse. This isn't, this isn't Asaph having the power to, to say something and then it happens. 
This is Asaph praying to God. So they're first of all their prayers. Secondly, you need to understand that it's Asaph appealing to God's justice. What's at play here and why I put in verses 5 through 7 praying God's justice is that very thing. To pray that God would be just, that, that, that Asaph is appealing to God saying, would you please make things right? I know this isn't the way your world was intended to be. And you'll notice too that, that Asaph doesn't pray and you'll look other places in the Psalms when you see these uh, imprecatory verses. There's never a prayer that's asking God to do more than's deserved. Now you might make objection to that because you might say, well, wait a second, Todd, look at verse 12. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts which they have taunted you, O Lord. The word sevenfold is intentional because it means this. Seven often in Scripture is a representation of something that's perfectly designed. And so the point that Asaph is making is bring a perfect justice to what's deserved in this moment. Asaph doesn't ask for God to do more than is deserved. He's saying, Let's, God, would you please do what's right? There's this book, and I'll give you the short version of it, the three points that are probably helpful, a book by a German um, scholar called A God of Vengeance. Eric Zenger is the writer. And he says three things about imprecatory psalms that I think are helpful for us and how they can help us, how praying that can be helpful to us. He says, number one, it reminds us, the imprecation in these psalms and praying that in our prayers reminds us that injustice and exploitation are offense against God. So what was happening to Jerusalem, what Asaph prays, God, this injustice, this exploitation is an offense against you. And we need to, we need to be reminded of that. That the injustice and exploitation that we see in this world is an offense, a sin against God. It's, it, it is in His character, it is in His creation that there be justice, that people not be exploited. And when people are exploited, people we don't even know are exploited. It is an offense against our God. And it's a reminder of that. Secondly, Eric Zenger says this, it keeps us from being ambivalent to the injustice around us. I found that very helpful personally. The imprecations that we see in the Psalms, these prayers, being focused on God's justice, keep me from being ambivalent, from not caring about the injustice that's around me. I certainly care about injustice that happens to me or exploitation that happens to people I'm close to, but I'm tempted, aren't you tempted, to not really have great concern about injustice or exploitation that's taking place in other parts of this city or other parts of this country or other parts of the world. Isn't it interesting that the, the, uh, the comparison between the outpouring of anger and uh, um, sadness and even resolve and money for, the, for the, uh, the burning down of Notre Dame, when you compare that to the response of the world to the bombings in Sri Lanka, just how seemingly outweighted they are. Let me just say, I'd, I'd, 
I, Notre Dame is an amazing piece of art, and, and it's a, a symbol of that city, and it's very sad that it burned down, and I'm thankful that people want to contribute uh, to, to rebuild that. But when you just look at the response of the world to the burning of a building compared to the suicide bombings of three, that killed 300 people and injured 500 more in churches, the comparison is just, it reminds us how ambivalent we can be to injustice and human suffering and how focused we can be on things that, that we maybe feel more familiar with. And these imprecatory psalms, they help us, Eric Zinger says, keeps us from being ambivalent to the justice around us. And finally, number three, Eric Zinger says this, it leaves the right response in God's hands. That's what Asaph is doing. Asaph isn't taking vengeance himself. He's not calling the people in Babylon to revolt against the Babylonians. He's not, he's not saying, hey, let's go out and figure out how we can assassinate uh, the king or the rulers around us. Let's, let's take this in our own hands. Instead, he's leaving it in God's hands. So the prayer of imprecations that we see in Psalms are prayers of justice saying, God, this is an offense against you. They're prayers that remind us that the, that the suffering and the exploitation around us should bother us because we are children of our Heavenly Father and we don't want to be ambivalent to that. And recognizing God's sovereignty, we're going to leave it in His hands. Asaph's not taking control of it. He's saying, God, there's injustice. God, make things right. And it's a prayer. So God, it's in your hands helpful for us and certainly helpful for me as we look at that praying God's justice and then look at verse 8 praying God's mercy Asaph teaches us to pray God's mercy it's clear in this thing even as he's praying down the imprecations on the Babylonian uh, uh, empire and what they have done and asking God for justice he hasn't missed the fact that Israel's sin is in play here and Asaph clearly calls that out. Asaph knows that it is, it is because Israel has sinned decade after decade against God and God has said to them, I'm going to punish you. I, I'm going to discipline you. And this has been the, this is the final discipline of God's people at this point in history. This is the culmination They've lost the city, they've lost the temple, they've lost their place, and they have been taken into exile. And Asaph doesn't miss the fact that, that the sin is there. In fact, it's interesting, notice in the, in the verse, verse 8, twice he uses the phrase us. He doesn't say, they have sinned against you, those, those bad Israelites among us. He says us. He includes himself in this this sin. And he does so rightly. It's very helpful for me personally. Because there can never really be in our prayers this attitude of, well, I don't really deserve this. But I find myself, don't you sometimes feeling like, hey God, I don't deserve this? Whatever the suffering is or whatever it is that we feel that is, like, Lord, why won't you relieve this? Why won't you provide this? God, I've been faithful to you. I come to Amen every Thursday morning for the last 15 years, and I've tried to bring other friends, and I go to church, and I, 
And there can be sometimes a sense of self-righteousness and then a response to God to say, I don't deserve this. I understand how other people deserve this, but I don't deserve this. But Asaph doesn't say that. Asaph recognizes he deserves this. He doesn't appeal to his own righteousness to get God to act. He appeals to God's mercy. He acknowledges himself to be a sinner and then appeals to God's compassion. Later on in verses 9 and 10, he'll ask God, he'll call God to be the God of salvation. He'll ask God to atone, to make right his sin. He understands his own sin. I think that's so important for us in our prayers. It's so important for us in our relationship with the Lord that, we, that we're aware of our own sin. If you weren't at the Monday Thursday service here at Second um, this past week to hear uh, Barton preach a, a great word from the Lord, a passionate word from the Lord on both our sin and God's great love for us, I really encourage you to, uh, to go online and to listen to that. It's, it's an excellent exposition of God's word that is very, very moving. But here's what's so moving about it. What's so moving about it is that Barton rightly, using, you know, doing exactly what God's word calls us to, calls us to sit in the reality and the grossness of our own sin. In order that we would understand the immensity of God's love and grace. And the point that he makes from Scripture is you can't really understand the immensity of God's grace and compassion unless you understand the depths of your own sin. If you skip over the depths of your own sin, then you don't really need much of a Savior. If you're kind of a good guy, then you only need God to kind of pat you on the head and say, yeah, okay, cool, you're great. But isn't it only when we realize how miserably desperate we are, how our inclinations, even as we walk out of this room, are our own pride, our own self-righteousness, our own self-preservation, that we, in that state of, oh, Lord, I'm a mess. Find the love and the compassion of God so beautiful, so intoxicating. That's what Asaph is doing here. He clearly understands his sin and the sin of his people. And he's not saying, God, we don't deserve this. Instead, he's saying, no, God, we deserve this and we, we need you to be merciful. We deserve this, and we need you to atone for our sins. We deserve this, and I'm appealing to your character as a God who is a God of salvation, praying God's mercy. And then in verses 9 through 10, we see Asaph praying God's glory. Do you remember the first time you read one of those verses in the Bible? There's several of them, uh, like John uh, chapter 14, verses uh, 13 and 14, that talk about God just giving you whatever you ask for in prayer. Like, t- let's, let's turn, look, look at verse 13 and 14 of, of John 14. Flip over there, or listen to me at least. This is, this is uh, Jesus speaking to his disciples, right? And, and this is several places in the Gospels. Jesus says this, 
verse 13 of uh, chapter 14 of John. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Remember the first time you read that? Maybe you were, maybe you were 13 like I was. Or maybe you had just become to know Christ and you were 30. But you read that and you're like, okay, wait a second. What's the deal with that? So anything I pray, if I just pray in Jesus' name, it's going to happen. And probably not too long after that, you realized, hey, that doesn't seem to work. Because I remember praying like, Lord, I didn't really study well for this test. So in Jesus' name... (laughs) I need you to get me at least a B on this test. And, um, you know, I, I, the, the D came anyways, right? And you try it again, and you're thinking, maybe I'm not wording it right. Let me go back to John 14 and see how the exact wording needs to take place. Do I need to put Jesus' name in the front of the prayer, in the back of the prayer? How, what's the magic formula for this? Maybe I need to live right. Maybe I need to be living right a little bit more. That's it. I need, to, uh, I need to have more quiet times. Then I can pray in Jesus' name. Then it, and you live long enough, walk with Christ long enough, you're like, somehow it's just, that can't be it. It can't just be, I pray in Jesus' name, it's going to happen. So, so what is it? What's going on that? Is that not true? What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? It certainly does mean that all of our prayers need to be in Jesus' name. And they need to be in Jesus' name because it's only in the name of Jesus through his work that we actually have access to the Father. A prayer that's not made in the name of Jesus, a prayer that's, that's not in, intended to be um, uh, seeking the Father, knowing with a knowledge of that it's only Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection that gives us access to the Father, that prayer is not a prayer. It doesn't reach the Father. So you've heard Sandy Wilson and others say this before. I've probably said this too. If somebody asks me at some function that may or may, that's maybe not Christian or it's ecumenical, and they say, we want you to pray, but please don't pray in Jesus' name, I just politely decline. I mean, I'll make a big deal out of it, but that's not a prayer. It's not a prayer if it doesn't involve in Jesus' name. So certainly that's what it means. But there's something else here, and it's what Asaph is getting at. It involves the glory of his name. So the prayer that's answered is the prayer that seeks God's glory, not just my relief or my provision. That's the thing. It's not a a manipulative formula here. Hey, if I pray Jesus' name, I'll get the thing I need. No, what God's word teaches us, what Jesus was saying, what Asaph is praying is this. I'm going to pray for God's glory. I don't know if my provision and what I want to happen for my life necessarily matches up with God's glory, but I know that I I need to not have just my needs be the focus of my prayers. The focus of my prayers need to be God's glory. It needs to be His name. Notice there in those verses, verses 9 and 10, notice that three times Asaph says, Your, speaking to God, Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your namesake. Then later in verse 10, let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known. In fact, 
If you look at the whole psalm, there's 11 times when Asaph says that. Look back at the beginning. Verse 1. O God of the nations who've come into... The nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. Verse 2. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, to the flesh of your faithful, to the beasts of the air. Look at verse 6. Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. Verse 8. Do not remember our sins against us and our former iniquities. Let your compassion comes speedily to meet us. And then in verse 12, or excuse me, 13. But we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. Over and over, Asaph's focus of his prayer from start to finish is God's glory. That needs to be the focus of our prayers. God, how could you receive glory? Praying in Jesus' name is to pray for His glory, for His name to be great, not for my name to be great, not for your name to be great. That Asaph is resigning himself to the sovereignty of God, saying, God, I I appeal to your justice. He's resigning himself to the mercy of God. I appeal to your compassion. He's resigning himself to the glory of God. God, I appeal to the glory of your name. So that whatever happens... Let's make sure that your name receives glory. No matter what happens to me or to your people, that it would happen to you. And he's not doing this to manipulate God. He's not thinking, gosh, you know, if I, if I just mention his name, if I just say, hey, it's all about your glory, that, that'll maybe get God to answer this thing I want done here. He's saying, no, He's not thinking like that at all. In fact, instead, I, I think what's happening, it's, it's training his heart and his mind to the ultimate issue, which is God's glory. And when you and I are careful in our prayers to, to make it about God, to make it about his name, about his people, about his church, about his possessions, about, about his work, and, and His glory is a focus. What does that do for us? It trains our hearts and minds to be aligned with the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue is not our comfort. It's not our safety. The ultimate issue is the glory of God. That is the, that is the center of everything. Even the cross. Even last week. You ask the question... Why did Jesus die for your sins? And it's not incorrect to say that it's because he loved you. That's not incorrect. That is true. Why did Jesus die on a cross for your sins? Because he loved us. That's true. But it's not the ultimate answer. Why did he love us is the next question. And the only answer is for his glory. What's the ultimate reason Jesus went to the cross? For the glory of God. That's the ultimate issue. And Asaph here is teaching us in our prayers to make that the ultimate issue. And then finally, in verses 11 through 13, 
Asaph is praying God's victory, teaches us the same. Verse 13, some scholars want to say, well, verse 13 is maybe not part of the prayer. Maybe it's a conclusion. I just think it makes sense as you look through the whole thing and what Asaph is doing in his prayer that this is certainly a statement to God. It's not just a statement to the air. Because he says, your people and the sheep of your pasture. He says, we're going to recount your praise. Notice that there's no answer yet. There's no deliverance yet. Verse, there's not a gap between verse 12 and verse 13. He said, but we are the people of, or we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. We will recount your praise Asaph recognizes that the victory that needs to take place, God's victory, is centered on God's glory. And God receives glory when His people are in relationship with Him and worship Him no matter what the circumstances. The ultimate victory for God is not dependent upon historical circumstances being arranged in a certain way. The ultimate victory for God is His glory which comes when His people are in relationship with Him and worshiping Him no matter what the circumstances. And so the recounting of praise that Asaph does is before any deliverance And that is God's victory. That He would be praised as sovereign, as just, as merciful, as glorified, no matter what happens. You know, historically, the deliverance of God's people from Babylon uh, won't happen for several more decades. Seventy years, seventy years the people are in captivity. And Jerusalem and the temple lay in ruins. The, 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 historical, the historical deliverance that Asaph speaks about won't take place for decades later. So I asked myself, okay, well then what is the answer now? I mean, Asaph's praying this prayer. Is God just like, yeah, 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 Asaph, I, we, we'll talk later. What is, what's the answer for, for this prayer that Asaph prays now? And brothers, I wonder this. Is it, not, is it not the prayer itself? Is the answer to is the answer to Asaph's pain? Not the act of prayer itself, the communing with God, the being in relationship with God, the worshiping of God. Is it not? That thing, right that moment, is the prayer itself not the very answer to the pain, the anguish, and the desperation that he feels. Think about what we learned, Psalm 73, when, uh, turn back to that, just a few pages back, that, that Barton spoke on a few weeks ago. Remember this? Remember Asaph, same guy? He's saying... I know God's good, but here's the deal. I'm trying to follow God, and my life's not going so well. Those people are not following God, 
and everything's going great for them. They're wealthy. As Asaph says in Psalm 70, their bodies even look good. Thanks, Lord. They, I'm working out just like them and, and having a quiet time, and I'm still 15 pounds overweight, and they've got six-packs at age 60. What in the world? What's going on there? And, and listen, people listen to them? They're, they're spewing garbage, and yet people are listening to them. So surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure, he says. Remember that? Remember how it starts, though. Asaph's thought, thought starts this. Truly, verse 1, truly God is good to Israel. He makes a statement. Truly God is good to Israel. But it doesn't seem like things are good. But look at what happens. Remember what happens at the very end of his prayer? Verse 28. After praying his heart, after praying his lament, after praying honesty, after recounting the glory and truth about God, what does Asaph come to pray? He says this, verse 28, but it is good for me to be near God. Remember what, Barton, the good is changed to be rightly aligned with what God thinks. Asaph begins with, I need good things to happen to me. And in prayer, in prayer, he comes to the place where he realizes it's good to be near God. I think Asaph does the same thing at verse 79. I mean, Psalm 79. I think he says, but, no matter what, but, we're the sheep of your pasture. We are your people, we will recount your praise. It's good to be near God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I don't know what each of these brothers is experiencing in their lives right now. It may be, Father, that they are experiencing times of, of real harvest. Lord, you, by your mercy and your grace, may be pouring out on them material blessings or relational blessings, emotional blessings. They may, they may be enjoying great, great seasons of joy. Or, Father, there may be brothers in here who are feeling the desperation and hopelessness that we see in this psalm. And they are mourning, their hearts are heavy with sons or daughters or grandsons or granddaughters who seem farther away from you than ever before. They may be grieving, feeling hopeless because of physical ailments for which there is no answer either for them or for some that are dear to them. They may, they may feel the loneliness of seeing close um, family members or friends die. Father, they may... They may wonder about the future because of provision that doesn't seem possible. Lord, wherever we are, what we know we need most right now is to be in communion with you. We know we need to be honest. So, Father, work in us the truths of these prayers. Lord, may we have uh, the ability to pray our pain 
to not make our prayers simply a checklist of what we need you to do. But Lord, may we pray in ways that are increasing our relationship with you, that are training our hearts and minds to be in line with your glory. Lord, teach us about your justice. Teach us about your mercy. Teach us about your glory. Teach us about praise. Teach us, Father, that it is good to be near God. For we do ask this prayer, or make this prayer, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.